0: All this talk about revival is getting me to think of the revival games that happen every year. And I don't know if you know this, but this year the games are happening where they're supposed to happen. A lot of the games that you've played at revival in the past, we played on different fields and things like that. But a lot of them were designed to be played in this cove area, which is where we're going to be playing them. You're going to be running down this grass slope on the beach and then into the water. So when you play games like steal the bacon, like hunger games games and if you don't steal the bacon is that's where everybody rushes and tries to grab inner tubes and put them on their own cone and there's some intense fights that kind of break out between different people that that's that's okay that's agreed upon at revival we also have hunger games which is where people take different nerf swords and battle axes and if you get touched you're dead so if you're one of those type of people like to do that Hunger Games is pretty intense, but there's even more when you think about the Neb's Head, that's like water polo, basically taking these um, balls in the water and throwing them and hitting the Neb's Head thing off. And of course, D Day, which was designed at Lake Havasu, which is the game where you're on a boat you jump off the boat, you storm the beach with your flag, and you have to plant your flag on the top of a hill without getting hit by dodgeballs and tennis balls and water balloons and things like that. So um, this is just exciting, getting me excited. And I know your leaders have played these games in the past, although some of you haven't, but your leaders can testify that revival games bring out the competitive side of a couple people. It's a good thing I don't play revival games anymore. One of you, uh, this last week, tagged me in an Instagram post uh about uh, when youth pastors play the games and it was Chuck Norris sipping some uh, iced tea, like preaching a sermon, sharing his testimony, and then playing a game. Uh, Chuck Norris was not sipping that. He had a bunch of guns in his hand. And uh, (laughs) I think it was an accusation that sometimes I get a little too into it. But uh, the leaders can testify that that kind of happens when you get in that competitive spirit. And uh, that's what's kind of fun about revival games. You get competitive. It's person versus person. Who's going to be the best? It's a natural feeling, especially if you play sports or do anything where you have to be great. That's not a bad desire, to be great. Even to be first is not necessarily a bad desire. But I want to tell you, as you probably know, that Jesus has a lot to say about being first and being best. And there are unrighteous ways that we could go about being first and being best. And what happened with his disciples one time is two of them got together and talked to their mommy. And they said, mommy, can you please go ask Jesus if we can be the most important people in his kingdom? And then the mommy said, yes, of course, dears, I'll go talk to Jesus. And she literally did. The story we're about to read this morning is when two guys went to their mom, and the mom asked Jesus, hey, can we be great? Can we be first? Can we be best? It was a special favor that they're asking. But Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. If you really knew what you're asking, you wouldn't ask me to be first, and best, and greatest, because to be first in God's kingdom, to be best in God's kingdom is to be the servant of all. We've been talking about what it means to be a mature Christian, to be an adult in the faith. You cannot grow from high school, college, and become a mature Christian adult without understanding what we're going to talk about today. You will not do it, you will not mature, unless you take the posture and the position of a servant for other people. It just won't happen. So I want you to grab your Bibles and look when Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 20. Please everyone grab a Bible. Matthew chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible, we've got some Bibles on the back table. You can grab it now. Now's a good time. As we turn there, I said that these two men asked their mom a question. Hey, can you ask Jesus if we can be first? Now, this comes after Matthew 19 where Jesus has this conversation with the disciples and says, you don't even realize something. Because you left everything to follow me, You guys are gonna be the greatest and the best in the kingdom of God. So they had just heard this promise from Jesus that they would have great rewards in heaven for being the initial disciples of Jesus. So it's not a crazy thing that they're asking, but it is kind of a selfish thing that they're asking. In fact, verse 24, the verse before we're looking at, it says, when the 10, the other 10 disciples heard that they asked for this, they were indignant at the two brothers. They were super mad. I cannot believe you went to Jesus and asked him for a special favor like that. That was wrong. The disciples were mad about this. And then Jesus, sensing that there was conflict with his group of disciples, in verse 25 says this. Look what it says. Jesus called them together. Said, hey, you two and you ten, come here. I know you're bickering about each other. I know you're talking behind your back. Get over here and we need to have a conversation. He said to them, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. The word Lord, we don't usually use like this, but now that's like in a verb tense, right? Like taking your power and subjugating people. Or the idea is powerful people and important people gain from the people that are under them, so to speak. Whether you're famous, whether you're a powerful person in business or in government, most people, what they do is they take their power and then they get something, out of the people that are under them, so to speak, even famous people. You get something, you get money, you get endorsement deals out of the people that are under you, so to speak. Okay? And that's what Jesus is saying. That's just how the world is. But he says, it shall not be so among you, verse 26, but, who would ever be, whoever, who would ever, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you would be your slave. So he says, I don't understand why you would ask this because it's such a hard thing that you're asking. If you only knew. And Jesus is gonna explain something about how he is first and best by what he did. Look what he says in verse 28. He says, make yourself a servant, make yourself even a slave, even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He says, look what I'm about to do. I'm gonna show you and everyone in the whole world that I'm first and greatest and best because I am going to be your servant. There's two words in this text, servant and slave. And I like that our Bibles have those as different things because sometimes people translate it the same. Those are two different words, okay? Servant is the word diakonos in Greek, which means a, a minister. Or and, and you think minister, you think of like a guy with a, a big black robe, okay? That's not what a minister is. A minister is a waiter, someone who serves tables, someone who goes around and says, would you like a Diet Coke with that? Um, Can I clean your plate? Are you done eating? That's what a diakonos was, a a servant, okay? A, A slave is a different word, the word doulos. A slave is someone who's owned, right? A slave is someone who cannot be free in any sense from their master because they're owned, they are the property of whoever their lord or master or manager is, which by the way, when you hear the word lord, we often just treat it like such a spiritual word, we're not thinking about what it means. If you're the lord, who talks to the lord? Well, slaves. If you recognize Jesus as your Lord, what you're saying is, I am Jesus' slave. That's something we often miss in translation as we just breeze past these words, but it's important for us to realize that. He's saying this, if you want to be great, if you want to be first, here's what you need to do. Make yourself the slave of all. What does that mean? I want to talk about what that means, because if we're going to be first or great in the kingdom of God, and I want you to be. I'd love if all of you were better and greater and do more for God than I ever will. But the point is we're not gonna do that unless we adopt this mindset of I'm gonna serve other people. That's what greatness looks like. It looks like putting other people before myself. It looks like inviting people into my friend circle even though that might be uncomfortable for me, I'm putting them first and bringing them in. Getting out of our comfort zone, doing things that, that, that are awkward or hard but they're good for other people. That's what it looks like to be the servant. So if you want to step up, if you want to be an adult, here's what you need to do. You need to step down. That's what Jesus is saying. You step up by stepping down. Ultimately, we will not be faithful Christians and and the people that we should be unless we say, okay, I'm willing to step down. I'm willing to serve other people because that's what Jesus did. I want to start at the end, verse 28, and learn what we can from this. Now, verse 28 is like one of the best verses in the book of Matthew, right? The Son of Man came not to Be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. There's a lot of theology and teaching packed into that one verse, but I want you to know why it's here. Some of you are going to know some of what I'm going to talk about, but I want you to remember why does Jesus say that right now? What he's trying to do is compel his disciples to serve like he did, to say, hey, guys, I'm doing it. I'm better than you, is what Jesus says, and I'm serving you more than any of you are going to serve anyone else. So if I do that, is Jesus saying, then That's what we need to do too. That's what you need to do too. So point number one, I'd love for you to write this down. I want you to feel compelled to serve by Jesus. When you see what Jesus does, I want you to feel compelled. I'd love for you to write that down on that worksheet or notebook or whatever you got. Feel compelled to serve by Jesus. That's what he's getting at. This language of serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, uh, he's quoting the Old Testament here. He's alluding to the Old Testament And if you think of passages where it says that there's going to be this person called the servant of the Lord, who's going to be pierced for the transgressions of his people and crushed for their iniquities, you're thinking of Isaiah chapter 53. And I want us all to look there, because this is going to give us a lot of commentary. This is what Matthew's trying to point us back to. So please turn to Isaiah chapter 53 in your Bibles. Isaiah 53. If you're in the New Testament, you're going to turn left, basically to the middle of your Bibles, about halfway there, the book of Isaiah, this big book, 66 chapters, This prophet Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus was around, was commissioned by God to speak and to write. And this might be one of the coolest chapters in all the Bible because 700 years before Jesus came and took on flesh, he's described and his mission is laid out. Jesus in Matthew 20 is just saying, hey, I am the guy that's talked about in Isaiah 53. If you're at the beginning of the chapter, jump up a little bit. Look at Isaiah 52, 13. It says, behold, my servant shall act wisely. This is a reference to how Jesus is going to take on the form of a servant. Jesus is the servant. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. He says, and as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. This is looking to a day when the servant of God is going to be so beaten up and bruised that he barely looks human anymore, okay? If you know your Bible, you know what this is referring to. This is what Jesus is about to go through, which is why if you're sitting there as the disciples and you hear the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, he's cluing them in. Hey, Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53, that's what I'm about to do. In fact, he's talking at this point in his ministry about how he's going to die, and they're not getting it, okay? Back to Isaiah 53, look at verse one. It says, who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who knew the truth is the question. It says, for he grew up like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look on him or no beauty that we should desire him. He was not born in Jerusalem. He was born as a king, but yeah, it didn't look like it at the time. He was born of an unmarried 14-year-old girl is what, the son of man was born from. Like, okay, that's interesting. That's not exactly the most glamorous place to come into the world, but it says he was despised, verse three, and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. What that's saying is Jesus is so important, but when he came to earth, people did not recognize him as so important. Even today, Jesus is the Lord, he is the master, but most people in our world today will laugh at you if you think that Jesus is your Lord. They'll be like, are you kidding me? That, that, oh yeah, I mean he was a good, maybe a prophet, maybe a teacher, maybe some good moral uh, instructor or guru, but he's not like, you mean you're like doing in your life what you think he wants you to do? That's silly, that's ridiculous, okay? That's what the people thought back then too, that's what Isaiah promised 700 years before he came. Look at verse four. It says, surely he, the servant of the Lord, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. That's a word picture. The idea is, it's like imagining you have a backpack and you fill it with every big textbook that you pay way too much at school to rent and then give it back. You fill your backpack with that and you're carrying it around. That's the word picture. It's like Jesus took your sins and your sorrows, he put them in his backpack and he carried them. That's what a servant does. That's what Jesus did. He says, yet, even when he was doing that, the world that he inhabited esteemed him stricken. They said, you're just getting punished by God. You must be a bad person. Like Job's friends, if you've been reading the Daily Bible reading, saying, you must have just done something bad. That's why you're going through all this. You're just a criminal of some kind. Smitten by God and afflicted. Verse number five. But that's not the truth. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, the punishment, the discipline that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. If this is new information to you, that might sound odd because we grew up in a culture that has nothing to do with sacrifices and that all seems weird and pagan and occult. But the Bible is very clear that our sin, when we break God's rules, when we don't live up to his high standard, what that deserves from us or whoever commits that sin is death. Romans 3 says the wages of sin is death. All right, Romans 6, 23 says, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. That's what we're here for. That's what church is all about. It's all about this, that Jesus came to solve our biggest problem. And that's what our church is about. And that's what this ministry is about. That everyone would understand that we're sinners, that we're in need of God's grace, and that God did something about our biggest problem. And he calls us to respond to that and be Christians and repent from our sins and trust in him. That's what he's referring to here. Verse five says, with his wounds, we're healed. Verse six says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquities of us all. This is likely, people try to debate who's talking here. It seems like a group of people who are saved looking back at what Jesus did. So as Isaiah writes this and speaks from God, it's like, who is he speaking as? What's the character he's speaking as? He's speaking as this group of Jewish people who are saved in the future who look back and say, but we rejected him back then. Our ancestors did not follow what Jesus says. We rejected him. Look at verse seven. It says, but he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. When Jesus died, he didn't fight. He didn't say, no, 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 don't, you'll never take me alive. No, he willingly went and died for you. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living and stricken for the transgression of my people? It's like at the time, who was thinking, I know why this guy's dying. He's dying for the sins of his people. Like even his followers had trouble understanding that at the time. Verse 9 says, "And And they made his grave with the wicked. And with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So interesting, two promises are built in right there. It says, first of all, he died with wicked people. Remember where Jesus died, when he gave his last breath, he was being crucified between two criminals that had committed capital offenses. And a rich man in his death, the guy who said, I'll, I'll let Jesus be buried in my tomb, was a rich guy named Joseph of Arimathea. Verse 10 says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. That means Jesus, when he did that, he's not going to stay dead. He's going to see the people that benefit from what he did. In fact, verse 11 says, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, Make many to be accounted righteous. That is the entire story of the Bible right there. That unrighteous people will be accounted as righteous. That's what Jesus did. That's what he's talking about in Matthew 20, 28. He says in verse 12, therefore I will divide a portion with the many. The word many, weird. Why does Jesus in Matthew 20, 28 say he died for the sins of the many? Who is the many? Verse 12, the many. That's why this is another reference. Back to Isaiah 53, who are the many? Well, the people who trust in in Jesus. The people who look back and say, he is my savior. It says, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many, the many, same group, and makes intercession for the transgressors. That means he stands between you and God, although you're a transgressor, although I'm a transgressor and I've broken God's laws, Jesus stands between and says, I'm covering that guy's sin. God, don't punish him because of what I did. I, I stood in between you, God, and John. That's what he says. He says that about you if you trust in him. That is what Matthew 20, 28 is all about. The son of man came to give his life as a ransom. The word ransom is the, the word for payment. It's like if you're a slave and someone frees you, they're giving a payment to like free you from that slavery. This is what we're, we're talking about here. Jesus, in his life and death, did something to give a payment, a ransom to save you from your sins. And you might say, well, what does this have to do with service? What does everything to do with service? What does this have to do with me stepping up to step down? Like, what does that look like? Well, remember why Jesus said this. He says, look what I did for you. What are you going to do for me? What are you going to do for the people that I've called you to love? In fact, that's what Jesus says in, Ma- in uh, John chapter 13. If you know that story, John 13 Jesus washes the disciples' feet, which was a gross task. It's a disgusting thing that only the, the lowest servants and slaves did. Mostly, it wasn't even servants who did it. It was people who were owned. The slaves did that. But Jesus like, takes that position on himself, washes these disciples' feet, gets back up, and he says, do you know what I just did to you? Most people are like, oh, you washed my feet, right? No, you did something more than just washing feet. Jesus says in John 13, verse 12, he says, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher, And Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, here's what you need to do. You need to wash Jesus' feet, right? Is that what he says? It's not what he says. You can't wash Jesus' feet. They're far away. They're somewhere else. You can't wash his feet. What does he say? You also ought to wash one another's feet. You ought to serve one another. What can you do to serve Jesus? It's like, well, you can serve his people. That's what he asks you to do. That's what he asked me to do. It says, for I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done. Philippians 2 talks about this too, how Jesus is the Lord, yet he made himself a slave. Now, why are we talking about this? Well, because Jesus mentions this when he's saying, hey, you need to be willing to put others first. You need to be willing to serve people, even people that you think are like beneath you. You might have an estimation that some people in this world are beneath you and you shouldn't serve. Here's what Jesus says. Flip that on its head and know that I served a bunch of people that were, quote unquote, beneath me. That's what Jesus did. Hey, who's not beneath Jesus? Everyone is beneath Jesus. Right? But that's who he served. And what did Jesus do? Well, more than you're ever going to do, more than I'm ever going to do. And that's the point. It's like he's better than you are, right? And he's done more than you have. So How about like, let's make our way towards Christ-likeness? Let's be more like what he did. When there's times where we don't wanna sacrifice for our siblings, which is, uh, and that seems random, but that's actually a a helpful test, right? What are you like with your siblings? If I sat down and talked to your mom, what is she gonna say about how you talk to your siblings and how you interact with your siblings, That's a great test because we're comfortable with them, right, it's like, oh yeah, they won't mind. I can be mean to them, I can be dismissive of them, I can exclude them from things. Well, that's a really good test. You know that God has called you to serve them? Called you, some of you older siblings, to make yourself a servant for your younger siblings? That's uncomfortable. Now we're starting to get home to where we are. The people you don't like very much, the people who've been mean to you, you're called to serve them. Well, not them, right? Because, you know, they're mean to me, right? Jesus would never serve people who were mean to him, would he? Yes, he did, Right? Sorry, if you didn't catch the sarcasm, that was sarcastic. My mom tells me sometimes I need to show that I'm being sarcastic more because sometimes I deliver sarcastic lines with a straight face and it confuses her. Um, She told me that last night, so sorry for confusing you. Here's the point. Uh, Jesus, like, died for people who were not nice to him. Like, remember when he was dying? Remember what he said? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He's, like, in the act of forgiving people as they're hurting him and crucifying him. And for people like you and me, if we think theologically, like, why did Jesus die? Well, because you sinned. Why did Jesus die? Well, because I sinned, right? And did, were you always happy towards Jesus? Were you always, I'll do whatever you say to you?" No, it's like, w- we're jerks sometimes to Jesus, right? That's the line of the sermon. Right? We're jerks sometimes to Jesus, right? But, but what did he do for us, right? He lived for us, uncomfortably, died for us. Uncomfortable is not even a good word for that. Took our place. If he did that, here's what he's saying. I'm the Lord, you're the slave, you're the servant. How about you make yourself a slave of other people? That's what he calls me to do, that's what he calls you to do, if you're a Christian. The disciples were focused on serving themselves, and that was kind of the whole problem. Back in our passage, if you're in Isaiah 53, turn back to Matthew chapter 20, let's look at this. Matthew 20, the whole problem, and the whole reason we have this text is because people were trying to put themselves first. It was James and John, hate to say it, one of my namesakes, um... The sons of Zebedee who asked their mom, Siloam, Hey, uh, mom, can, can you ask Jesus if we can be best? Something that's interesting, by the way, about um, James and John, we find out that Siloam and Mary, Jesus' mother, are cousins. So that actually makes James and John relatives. They probably grew up with some knowledge uh, of Jesus. They were cousins. Maybe not first cousins, but second cousins. You know, part, They go to the same family reunions, let's just put it like that. So if anyone should be first, it should be the family, right? It should be the people who are closest. That might have even made this thing look worse to the disciples. But they're focused on themselves. And I think there's two words that capture this that are helpful for us. Uh, you might think, well, I can't really identify with James and John because I have no desire to, like, sit on the biggest throne in God's kingdom. Like, that, crossed, that thought has just never crossed my mind, Right? <laughs> And you're probably right. For most of you, you never thought, okay, am I going to be like the one sitting right next to Jesus or like second closest to Jesus, right? You probably not thought that, right? Thoughts never crossed my mind, right? Where am I going to rank up there? Because I just think I'm probably not going to be anywhere close to the head table, right? So it's like, we're going to be way down below. So you probably never thought about this. So what's the idea? What can you take away from this? I think the mindset and the attitude that led to this question was this. They were entitled Thinking, I deserve more than I actually have. And they were selfish, which was, I want what's best for me and I'm only focused on me. I'm not focused on anyone else, I'm focused on me. Those two words are important. I'd love for you to write them down. I want you, in your life, if you're going to be a servant, you need to fight two things, entitlement and selfishness. In your own heart, here's what you need to fight, entitlement and selfishness. I want you to know that it's going to be really hard in the world that you live in because the world that you live in is trying to tell you you should be entitled you should think better things about yourself. I looked up, this is kind of torturous, but I picked my favorites. I looked up a bunch of self-love sayings that like people post on Pinterest. It's actually really odd. Um, I went through like a, a hundred of them, and I picked, what, five of my favorites. You ready for these? Okay. Five of my favorite self-love sayings that the world tries to scream at you. And, and here's the funny thing. You might say, oh, pff, I don't believe that, right? Some of you might think some of these things are true, and I just want to tell you, disclaimer, what I'm about to say is bad, okay? These five quotes are really bad, so don't think, oh, yeah, you know, he's got a good point there. I should love myself more. No, okay. Um, I'm saying these are bad. Did you understand that? Okay. Now that I've given the heresy label, here we go, okay? Here's five of my favorite. Letting go of toxic people is a big step to loving yourself. Oh, that sounds... Oh, that sounds really good. <laughs> letting go of toxic people. Oh, toxic. Like my parents and like my siblings and like, oh, all the, all the people, like the disciples, they're pretty toxic. Right? Jesus called one of them Satan one time. Right? Like um, letting go of toxic people is the first step to loving yourself. Mm, okay. Stupid. That's stupid. You, toxic. Okay. You got a lot of toxic people in your life that God says you're supposed to love them. Put them first. What? Okay. That's just number one. Number two. To fall in love with yourself is the first secret to happiness, okay? You just got to fall in love with yourself, right? Everything about you, I don't know if you know this, but everything about you is perfect, I guess. Yeah, does the Bible teach that? No, it's like literally the opposite of that. You're not supposed to fall in love with yourself. You're supposed to get the attention off of yourself and onto others and serving them and and glorifying God. Okay, bad one, okay. um, This one's the shortest one. Number three, you alone are enough. You're enough. Like, you don't need food, water, clothing. Yeah, I mean, you're just, you're just enough. You're self-sufficient. You're like, God, really? I mean, you just need yourself, right? Are you triune as well? Like, is there, like, you have the triune fellowship of God? Like, no, you are not enough. Like, you need a lot of things. And everyone who says that ne- used a lot of things to say that dumb statement, right? You're not enough, okay? You need stuff every day. Do you know if, like, if you don't have water, you're going to die? If you don't breathe, you're going to die? Tell that to all the people in the hospital. Like, oh, you're enough. You're fine. Like, no, they know they're not enough. They need help we all need help. We need water, food, we need God, we need every day. Okay, that was number three. Number four, this one's even worse. I try to like get them worse as they went along, okay? Um, Unconditional self-love is all that really matters in life, and it's where real life begins. Unconditional self love It's all that really matters. Other people doesn't really matter. Just that you love yourself. And that's actually, by the way, where real life begins. This almost sounds religious, doesn't it? Like you are God and everyone else is supposed to bow down and worship you, okay? That's entitlement. That's what the culture teaches. I, I promise you five. Here's the last one. <laughs> Don't do this, okay? So this is, this is the last one. Tell yourself how wonderful you are, how great you are. Tell yourself how much you love yourself, so if you, if you didn't love yourself, just remind yourself how much you love yourself, okay? Um, those were all bad, so just disclaimer at the end, don't believe any of those things, those are all bad, but here's why I quote those to you, uh, because you'll scroll past them on your phones for the next 10 years, and then you'll scroll past them on whatever device you have after that. Like, this is what our world is preaching to you, right? You think these sermons are long, like, no, this is really short, You're on social media, most of you, between 20 and 25 hours every week getting preached at, okay? So these little 45-minute talking from the Bible is short, okay? You're going to get preached at all the time that you should love yourself, that you're great, that you're enough. Okay, the Bible says stop being entitled, okay? Here's what I mean by entitlement. If you want to write a definition down, it's I deserve to be served. That's the mindset. Entitlement means I deserve other people to serve me. Really, I'm the one that this should be about. I mean, this is my party, right? This is my thing. This is my room. This is my church. This is my small group. I really, I should have everyone in my small group be all the people that I want them to be. I think church should be everything that I want it to be. I think school should just be everything that I want. I, I should never, ever have to do an assignment that I don't want to do. Right? Uh, that's not how the world works. Right? Also, entitlement is the idea that I'm the center of attention. Right? Everything should be about promoting me. The world is preaching that to you. And I just want to tell you, if that's your mindset, you will be stuck in your growth as a Christian. You can't get past certain things if your mindset is it's all about me. You can get really smart. You can know a lot about the Bible, even thinking it's all about you. But here's what 1 Corinthians says. Love builds up while knowledge can puff up. The more knowledge you have of God's word should actually lead you to love more. Others focused not yourself focused Here's what Jesus says in Luke 17. I want you to write this down. Luke 17, 7 to 10. He tells a story. At the end of this story, I'll just read the story. Luke 17, 7 it says, Will any of you who has a servant or a slave plowing or keeping the sheep say to him, when he's come in dressed from the field, come at once and recline at the table with me. The idea is like, no, no, you're the waiter. You're not going to sit down and eat with me. You're just the one serving the table. It says, will he not rather say, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterwards, then you can eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? Right? The idea is, if you've got a servant, like you can tell your servant what to do, and you can thank them, but like if they do just the, the bottom line what they're commanded, a slave doesn't need praise for that. That's what they're supposed to do. That's their job. Verse 10 says, so also, when you have done all that you were commanded by God... Here's your mindset. Here's what you should think. We are unworthy slaves. We've only done what's our duty. That's the mindset Jesus is pushing us towards. And you might say that sounds really oppressive or maybe even abusive. Okay, here's why it's not. Because you will always, if you don't correct yourself, you'll always tend towards entitlement. You'll always tend towards selfishness. And Jesus is trying to pull you back from that. And say, no, 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 think like this. When you do something amazing and impressive and you want everyone to clap for you and say, wow, how amazing. Think this, I'm, I'm just a slave of God. I've just done what I should do. I just love my sibling. It's, that's, I mean, it's hard, but that's what I should do. Oh, I've just served something at the church. I've just done something with some younger people. I've just helped the kids at Camp Compass. I've I'm just really just done what I should do. I'm a slave of God. Praise is fine, but like, I, it's, I, it's not what I'm desiring. Entitlement. The other thing is selfishness, okay? That's a little bit different than entitlement. And here's what I mean by selfishness. Selfishness is I'm only considering myself. I'm only thinking about me. Entitlement says that I should be the one that the whole world is oriented towards helping. That's entitlement. Selfishness is a little different. Selfishness, you can be not so entitled, but you can still be selfish if you're thinking about yourself all the time, Um, Philippians 2, I quoted it before, but Philippians 2, 3, before it talks about how amazing Jesus is as an example for us. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Don't do anything out of your pride, out of trying to build your your, your ego. It says, don't do anything from that. It says, but in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Here's how the world will counter that, right? If you don't love yourself first, nobody else will love you, okay? It's a lie. It's a lie. Jesus loves you. Boom, done. Argument over, okay? Um, What is selfishness like? It just means I'm just thinking about me. And I wanna challenge you. Some of you think that you're very mature and you're godly and some of you are, but I want you especially to be challenged with this. How often are you just thinking about yourself? How often do you put yourself in the shoes, so to speak, of someone else? And think, I wonder how they feel about this. I wonder how they're gonna take this conversation. I wonder how they're gonna feel if I exclude them from this. Mm, I, should, I should really include them or I should really be kind about that. Right? We have a hard time sometimes, the world can use this word, uh, empathizing, getting in the shoes of someone else. That's what Jesus is calling us to do. Think about them and how they feel about something or what they think about something. Don't just constantly think about yourself because here's the thing. Naturally, you're gonna do that. Right? Even if you're a, a depressed person, I right? know this is a little controversial, but even if you're a depressed person, and you've experienced some self-hate, do you understand that even when you do that, you're self-focused? Like if you would stop and just like go outside and serve someone and mow someone's lawn, you wouldn't feel so bad about yourself anymore because you'd not be focused on yourself anymore, you'd serve someone else, right? Sometimes we're stuck in this mindset and it's a lie from the world that all we need to do is self-focus, do better, and then then we'll just love ourselves. Well, the problem is the more self-focused you are, you know what you start to realize? You're not that great, right? Sorry, I whispered that. We're not that great, right? If all I did all day was focus on myself, I'd probably go and cry in a corner, right? I'd be so disappointed, right? God calls us not to be entitled or selfish. There's such a thing as selfish service, by the way, and that's the reason I give entitlement and service, because you could come to church, you could do the the godly thing, and you could do it all for the wrong reason, okay? I want to address that before we move to point three, because Jesus says in Luke 14, He says, if you're going to throw a banquet, you're going to have a party, invite the people that will never invite you back. Invite people who have nothing to give. And the idea there was, he's telling these people, if you're rich and you have a lot of stuff and you have a big house, invite people who don't have a place to stay. Why does he say that? Because if you don't get paid back by them, remember who's going to pay you back. God's going to pay you back. And that's a better person to be paid back by. In that culture, there was this... um, quid pro quo stuff that always happen, right? I'll invite you to my banquet. I'll give you big gifts for your kid's wedding because I know at my kid's wedding, we'll get big gifts, lots of camels, lots of things like that, right? It was that exchange. Like if I'm hospitable and I'm, I'm good, then everyone will take care of me. And when it's my birthday, I'll have a bunch of gifts. So that's why I'm gonna give some big gifts. We gotta be careful because sometimes you and I can follow that mindset too. I'm gonna serve at church because you know what? Then everyone's gonna see I'm serving at church, right? Oh, I'll invite that person. I'll evangelize them. Oh, you know why? Because everyone will see that I'm doing it. Jesus warned about that in Matthew 6. If you practice your righteousness simply to be seen by other people and to be praised by them, Jesus says, that's your only reward then. I won't reward you, Jesus says. Making yourself a servant is the core of this. Basically, it's all getting back to this in Matthew 20. Point number three, I'd love for you to write this down. I want you to invest your life in serving others. I want you to invest your whole life in serving others. The reason I say your life, I could use some other words, but the reason I want to say your life is because stats are, for most of you, you're you're near the beginning of your life. Some of you are not. Some of you might be near the end, but most of you statistically are near the beginning of your life, which means God will most likely give a group like this a lot of time. Could have used the word youth. Invest your youth in serving others as well because that's what's very countercultural. Here's what even some of the Christian people say. You know what? Spend your youth on you, Wait till your youth is over, and then you can start to spend it on other people. You should wait to serve, I mean, at least until you're done with college and you've traveled the world and you've done everything you want to do. You should wait at least until then. Some of you might have some amazing opportunities to do things like that, and I'm not saying it's bad. What I'm saying is if you think, I'm going to wait to serve until I'm past my youth or past high school or past college, can I tell you a secret? You're probably never going to do it, unless something radically changes about you. Some of us think, well, I'm too busy to serve. I've got too many things going on, right? And a lot of you are busy, right? Start somewhere. It doesn't have to be a formal post. It doesn't have to be like you coming to be an LIT for Awana. That's great if you do, or serving with the kids on the weekend. That's a great place to start. But if you can't start there, start with something because what you need to do is start building the habit of serving because if you don't build the habit of serving, you won't later on. If you think, I don't have time now. I'm so busy now, right? Five years from now, you're going to laugh, at that statement, right? Leaders say amen, right? Uh, yeah, right. You think you're busy when you're in high school, and then you go to college. Then it's like, oh man, I had so much free time in high school. I was free between like 8 p.m. and like 6 a.m. every day. Then you're going to be in college and you're not going to be free from 8 to 6. You might be free from 6 to 8, but you're not going to be free at night, right? Because you're going to be doing all your homework and schoolwork, right? And then you're going to get a job. And you're going to be there every day, maybe for 40 hours, 50 hours, 60 hours for some of you. Some of you are gonna be nurses and firefighters and you're gonna be pulling these day-long shifts and night-long shifts. And you're gonna be like, wow, remember when I had all that free time back when I was in high school? I really should have served back then. And that's kind of what I'm trying to get at with you. Um, I don't want you to regret not serving earlier in your life. Jesus told a story about regret and about serving and about investing in Matthew 25. You can write it down. You don't have to turn there. We don't have time. But Matthew 25, it's the parable of the talents What this was, was Jesus telling a story. This imagine that a master, a lord, gave his servants and slaves different amounts of money, and they were supposed to spend a a long period of time investing that money. And then they want to get a return for the master because that's why the master gave it to them. So their whole purpose in life is what? Well, it's to grow the master's investment. To take what was invested in them and to grow it. Two of them do, one of them doesn't. One of them takes it and buries it in the ground, Two of them take the money that they were given and they invest it, they buy real estate or they buy whatever they bought and they flipped cars or houses or whatever they did and they got a lot of money back in return. They doubled their money. And in the story, Jesus says, the master will say to those servants, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. You might feel like I only have been given this much time or this much space to serve. Well, here's what Jesus says, do a really, really good job in whatever you have, and guess what's going to happen next? He's going to give you more responsibility. He's going to give you more things for you to be faithful in, and he expects you to continue to grow as a Christian. I'm really starting to feel this now that I'm a dad, but like it's the weirdest thing in the world that God gives parents like people, like there's a person you're supposed to like. Oh man, like you know, being a junior high leader did not prepare me for that, right? Uh, like a baby, a whole person, I'm really starting to feel it, right? So I'm at the stage of my life where in five years I'm going to laugh and think, oh, John, you, you were at all the time in the world back when you were doing high school at True North. I mean, you weren't even busy back then, right? But it's interesting, right, because uh, when you're invested and you have a lot, it's like, okay, I see my, my goal and my task, I better make the most of this investment, right? I mean, I was faithful and little, God is now giving me, um, this baby, it's like, oh, baby, that's a lot, and now we've got another baby, and it's like, okay, this is okay, too much, right? Like, let's, let's, let's slow down real quick, God, let's, let's have, two kids can be enough for a little bit, um, uh, just for, yeah, a little while, um, and, like, now I can kind of see, like, okay, my job for these two, like, little babies is to, um, raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord, um, to love them, to serve them, to be a good example to them, right, it's very tangible for me in that way, right, um, And for you, I'm just asking you, can you find something to say, this is gonna be my task, this is gonna be my job, right, for God, at this stage of my life, it might look like putting the donuts out, it might look like serving in the church, it might look like writing cards to encourage people, it might look like you being a really good friend, it might look like you being a good person who does outreach, who brings people who are not in the center of the friend group to the middle of the friend group, right? It can look like a lot of things that are sacrifice, but the point is, in all of it, you might end up at the end feeling like this. Like Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, 15, you might feel spent. Paul said in that passage, 2 Corinthians 12, 15, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Um, The more you love people and the more you do this, the better you're gonna get at that and the more willing you're gonna be to serve other people, which is why I'm saying use your youth, use your high school years to invest right now. It won't get easier in the future. Start now, it's going to be better. It reminds me of uh, retirement. Now I got this baby, I got to think about saving for retirement. I started that like a couple years ago, um, saving for retirement. And uh, they say some things, right? Dave Financial could probably help you a little bit better than I could. But they say some things about, Saving for retirement, it's always better to save earlier, right? The earlier you can save, the better. Um, I was reading this article this week from Forbes, and it said that if you start saving at 25 versus 35 for retirement, there's a massive difference in what you're going to get at the end. It says if you save when you're 25, if you save $100 a month with a 10% annual compounding rate, at the end of, you know, your, what, 30, 40 years, you're going to have over $600,000, okay? That's pretty good. Just at $100 bucks a month, and at some point, you're probably going to save more than that. It says if you start at 35, this is what I read, if you start at 35, you invest $200 per month with the same compounding rate, you'll only have about $400,000, okay? So you're saving double with 10 less years and you're getting less. Here's the quote. It says investor B who starts saving at 35, has invested $200 a month. Investor B would have almost $200,000 less in their retirement balance by age 65 despite contributing almost $25,000 more. Okay, Why am I talking about retirement? Okay, Because there's a similar principle to serving. Okay, If you wait to serve until you think you have time, you probably won't have that much time, and then you'll probably serve less. My point is, if you can be a servant, not just tangibly and physically at the church by by serving and doing all that stuff, but also in your heart. If you can adopt the mindset of being a servant and I'm going to be humble and I'm going to serve, if there's a need, I'm I'm going to meet it. If that can be your heart, do you understand that you're going to grow so much? Do you understand that you're going to do so much for God? And ultimately, do you understand that as what Luke 14 said, God is the one that's going to repay you? It says, wait for God to repay you at the resurrection of the just. Like, That's when real rewards are going to be meted out. We got a little short amount of time before eternity and your eternity and even where you stand and what you'll have at some degree is going to be dependent on how you use your life now. Please don't wait to become a servant. Don't wait to be humble like this. Become a servant right now. Let's pray for that. God help us with this. We pray that we'd fight this entitlement and selfishness that's, super common in our culture. I pray that these students would be different, that we, um, the leaders would be different. We wouldn't think of our own interests first, but we'd think of the interest of others and be willing servants for you. We know this is hard. We're gonna have to fight our flesh to keep us from being selfish and entitled. So I pray that we'd have victory in this area. We know that you promised that there's no temptation that's overtaken us that's not common to other people, but you're faithful and you won't let us be tempted beyond our ability but with the temptation, you'll also provide the way of escape. We trust that and we pray that even in a selfish and entitled world, we would stick out and we'd be different and we'd really adopt the mindset of a servant just like Jesus did. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.